Hello and welcome back to the Long History Short. I'm your host Ranjit and you're listening to an episode from the series on Ashok and Ashokan Edicts. So far I have shared how Ashok came up with the idea of issuing edicts that could be inscribed on stone surfaces. You also listened to the first set of edicts that are now known as the minor edicts where Ashok admitted to having turned an upasak or a new follower of the Buddha's order. The next set of edicts are the ones he inscribed on larger rock surfaces located at sites marking the borders of his kingdom. Of all the sites it is the one at Girnar in the state of Gujarat that is most well known for a complete set of the major rock edicts. It has remained in public memory also owing to the presence of a famous pilgrimage site on the same hill where this rock edict happens to be. Most of the other major rock edict sites are not as lucky however and they have fallen off the map for common people. You have to be an aware student of history and Ashokan history especially to even know about these national monuments. In all there are around 10 major rock edict sites spread out over nearly 2/3 of the Indian subcontinent. Kandahar in Afghanistan, Shahbazgarh and Mansehra in Pakistan, Kalsi in Uttarakhand, Dholi and Jogad in Odisha, Yeragudi in Andhra Pradesh, Sannati in Karnataka, Sopara in Maharashtra and Girnar in Gujarat. These sites form a kind of loop that determines the geographic extent of Ashok's influence. In some places like Sopara near Mumbai, the rock bearing the edict suffered severe damage. While in other places like Girnar and Shahbazgarh, the rocks have braved the assaults of time, natural forces and human activity. A set of 14 edicts were issued in each of these sites. Only at the sites of Dholi and Jogad, which are in present-day Odisha or erstwhile Kalinga, the 12th and 13th edicts were replaced with edicts that are now known as separate major rock edicts. This peculiar occurrence has an interesting background to it and this is a good point in our journey to share more about it. For most of us, Ashok is known as a king who dropped his weapons to take up the life of a pacifist follower of the Buddhist religion. And in some legends, narrators have gone as far as suggesting that he forsake his kingdom to become a monk. If we go by the ancient scriptures that were written anywhere between 100 to 300 years after Ashok they all talk about him as a cruel ruler who attained enlightenment owing to soothing words of wisdom accompanied by acts of miracle of a buddhist monk who made him forsake if not his kingdom then surely his perverted and cruel ideas of running one however what we all remember from school history textbooks in india is a different version most indians will agree that the common assumption made for ashok's transformation was the war of kalinga and not a buddhist monk's words surprisingly the ancient scriptures nowhere talk about a kalinga war so from where does this alternative event originate the answer lies in edict number 13 from the major rock edicts this edict could fit very well as a soliloquy in a shakespearean or greek drama It also contains very specific details with regards to the extent of casualties caused during this bloody conflict. Ashok puts a precise number to those killed, wounded or enslaved in this war against the kingdom of Kalinga or the regions corresponding to parts of present-day Odisha. 
In fact, he uses these numbers to provide context for the strong urge that he felt to follow the Dhamma. The mid-20th century Ashokan scholar and historian Amulya Chandrasen has shared a translation of this edict, and it might be apt to share an excerpt from the edict over here. The Kalingas were conquered by the beloved of the gods, King Piyadasi, when he was crowned eight years. 150,000 in number were the men who were carried away from there. 100,000 in number were slain over there and nearly as many were wounded or mutilated. Thereafter, when the Kalingas had been newly conquered, the beloved of the gods felt a strong inclination for Dhamma, a desire for Dhamma and instruction in Dhamma. Now, it is repentance that the beloved of the gods felt on conquering the Kalingas. In this famous edict, he goes on to express his regret over having caused the massacre of not only combatants, but also ordinary civilians, including ascetics, Brahmins, householders and innocent people who had no reason to face such merciless violence. Ashok confesses that even if a hundredth or a thousandth part of this violence were to happen again, he would greatly regret it. The edict reads like a public apology of a transformed king who now promises to rule with the principles of Dhamma instead of violent annexation. It is this extraordinary edict of Ashok that sent ripples across academic and literary circles not only in India but around the world. For the first time in human history, a king was submitting a public confession for his violent acts against his own enemies. Important thinkers, like the author H.G. Wells, for example, felt compelled to bestow upon Ashok praise that is otherwise worthy only of modern-day leaders of peaceful political movements like Gandhi or Martin Luther King. For historians, this version of Ashok's transformation seemed far more acceptable, also given the archaeological evidence supporting it, rather than the legends which also spoke of his change but in a strictly religious context. In general, this edict is responsible for painting Ashok's image as a king who adopted the path of non-violence. So why does this edict suddenly disappear when it comes to the very place where this violence unfolded? In both the sites of Jogad and Dhauli that correspond to ancient Kalinga, this edict is replaced with alternate edicts giving assurances of justice and fairness to the newly conquered people of that province. Ashok instructs the governors or senior officers of that province to ensure that these people are treated the same way as other modern subjects. Ashok even goes to the extent of calling the people of Kalinga his children, for whom he had the same concern that a father would have for his own children. Now, was this a strategic maneuver of a politically savvy king, or was it an honest beginning on the path of the Dhamma, as admitted by Ashok in his minor edict? Some historians are of the opinion that Ashok deliberately avoided narrating the violent events in Kalinga itself because he did not want to remind its inhabitants of what they had experienced at the hands of their new ruler. After all, Ashok was inscribing these edicts to last beyond his lifetime, so he surely did not wish the descendants of the people of Kaling to remember him as a cruel invader. Also, the presence of such an edict 
may have threatened continued peace in the new province and acted as a symbol of hatred to rally around. Imagine the United States of America planting an edict in Afghanistan or Iraq reminding people of the violence that broke out in that country owing to their own political ambitions. Or imagine Russia planting such an edict in the state of Ukraine, reminding people of an annexation that they brought about. Sounds logical, doesn't it, that Ashok would also not have wanted to plant an edict that reminded people of mass violence that he had wrought upon them. So did Ashok really engineer this communication to hide his act of violence from the people of Kaling? We'll never be able to determine with enough conviction as there is very little else available in terms of either archaeological or historical evidence to corroborate either theory. Some historians have even cast doubt on the 13th edict itself. They would like to believe that within the confessional tone of the edict was concealed a threat to those living outside his borders, that they too would meet with the same fate as the Kalinga people, unless they observe the rules and laws of the Mauryan state. Although hypothetical and sounding a bit exaggerated, this theory has been the favourite of many historians and political analysts to present a justification for the surprising confession of the Mauryan emperor. In a largely democratic world today, in which Ashokan history has been written and rewritten, it feels obvious that a ruler would want to sugarcoat his public statements to mask his true intentions, since his fate depends almost entirely on public opinion. However, in 3rd century BCE, the power pyramid was not yet inverted. It still depicted one man controlling the destinies of hundreds of thousands within his realm. Therefore, it sounds a bit far-fetched that Ashok would have had to use the cover of a noble-sounding edict to issue a veiled threat. Had he wished to warn his bordering nations or even his own subjects, he could have simply stated so and in an explicit and direct manner. Take the example of Samudragupt's edict that is inscribed coincidentally on an Ashokan pillar in Ilabad. The Gupta king does not spare any opportunity to publicly humiliate his conquered enemies or to compare himself with the gods themselves. Likewise, edicts of Persian kings never fail to recount their victories and those whom they defeated or subdued. So why do we expect so much PR savviness of an ancient Indian king and particularly one who repeatedly talks about including other sects into the fold of his kingdom, not offending their sensitivities, and extends his message of Dhamma to neighbours as far as Greece, Egypt and Sri Lanka. This question will probably have to be answered in due time, as history, archaeological evidence and epigraphic evidence develop further. Well, we jumped straight to the end of the major edict series. So let's rewind a bit and go to the other edicts in this series. There are predominantly four themes running through the major rock edicts. Non-violence towards animals, curtailing expenses on rituals and festivities, and being respectful towards elders, learned people, and those lower in rank or class. The very first edict opens with Ashok confessing yet again to having earlier allowed hundreds of animals to be slaughtered in his kitchens for making tasty food. He actually uses the word 
suparthaya, which means for the purpose of making soup. And this is perhaps the first textual instance of the culinary term soup. He commits to changing this and also informs that now only a handful of animals, two peacocks and a deer to be specific, were being still slaughtered in his kitchen. The edicts also describe the hospitals Ashok created for treating animals apart from humans. This theme of non-violence towards animals carries into the pillar edicts as well and in fact becomes far more prescriptive in terms of the types of animals to be spared slaughter and other forms of cruelty. The second theme in the major edicts is that of abandoning practices such as expenditure on festivities and rituals. In one of the edicts, he makes a specific remark about how women especially tend to spend on ceremonies such as naming ceremonies of children, weddings and so on. He holds such rituals as far less fruitful than the ritual of generosity and morality which could earn a person greater merit. This social commentary tells us clearly about the prevalent practices in ancient Indian households. Many of these practices have not only continued but led to the same social issues that Ashok perhaps wanted his people to avoid. The location of some of the Ashokan edicts is also proven to be in places where large festivals were traditionally held and were often marked by animal sacrifice among other abhorrent practices. Ashok advises people to instead practice charity towards the needy and the learned. He gives his own example of having discontinued hunting and pleasure trips in favour of pilgrimages which would have involved donating to places of learning and religion. The next theme that occurs in these edicts is that of showing respect towards one's parents, elders, the ascetics, brahmans, servants, slaves and even those who do not belong to your own sect. This last category is especially emphasized upon when Ashok mentions that one should take care to not sound too pompous about his own religion or sect and instead respect others' beliefs and their views. His repeated references to Brahmins and Shramans in the same breath tells us about an inclusive culture that he set out to create, that too in a time when such sects held strong views against each other, often resulting in public outbursts and maybe even violence. Ashok also recommends generosity towards Brahmins and ascetics. He wishes that one should make such recommendations to their friends and family as well. The last theme in these edicts is that of Ashok's own dedication towards the welfare of his people and administration of his kingdom. This quality of Ashokan edicts makes them far more endearing than edicts issued by any other king in history. He talks about his personal routine, such as being in his harem, in his bedchambers, in the parks, in palanquins, but he gives priority to all state affairs above his personal routine. He had couriers bringing him news from all parts of his kingdom of the progress that his administrators were making to establish the rule of Dhamma as desired by Ashok. Ashok makes a specific mention of having appointed Dhamma Mahamatras. These would have been judicial officers dispensing justice based on the ideals of the Dhamma. Such a rank had never existed before and they were tasked with ensuring that fair and free justice was available to everyone regardless of which state they belonged to. In the edicts in Jogad and Dhauli, 
He even asks the Mahamatras of Taushali to make sure that no resident of the occupied country of Kalinga was in chains or fetters for a false cause. He endorses equal treatment even to those outside his borders. Ashok recounts the charitable works that he has done such as building wells and rest houses along travel routes, making available hospitals not only in his own country but even those of his neighbours such as the Bactrian Greeks and planting nurseries of medicinal herbs where none existed. Ashok desires such activities to be continued by his successors and his descendants as well. The major edicts occur in the middle period of Ashok's reign. They reveal to us also some interesting political facts, such as his neighbouring kingdoms. He reveals them to be the Cholas, the Pandyas, the Satyaputras and the Keralputras, who are all his southern neighbours. While he speaks of the Yonas or the Greeks, the Kambojas and Gandharas, who would have been his northern and northwestern neighbours. Ashok separately mentions Antiochus, who had taken over the Seleucid kingdom, perhaps given that the relations between the Mauryans and the Seleucids went back to Ashok's grandfather's time, Chandragupta Maurya's time. I hope you enjoyed listening to these interesting facts, theories and glimpses into the personality of a king who inscribed these edicts over two and a half thousand years ago. On the next episode, we will go on a tour of Ashok's pillar edicts. But until then, keep listening and keep exploring.